Hi everybody, it's Derek, and this is Foreign Exchanges for August 13th, 2021. Hello everyone out there, and welcome to Foreign Exchanges. As always, it's great to have you. If you're a returning listener, thanks for sticking with the program. Uh, we're in a little bit of a haphazard pattern here because I've got, um, as many of you may know, I've got another podcast project uh, with Daniel Bessner that I'm doing called American Prestige. You should check that out wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, <laughs> but it's kind of, I'm trying to work out the, the balance, the work-life balance, let's say, uh, of doing that podcast, the newsletter, this podcast. It's a lot of stuff going on. I'm still trying to shake that out. But we are continuing this podcast, and I do thank you for coming back and listening. Uh, if you're a first-time listener to Foreign Exchanges, please uh, you know, check out the back catalog. We've got a lot of shows that uh, uh, you can check out that I think you know still hold up uh, for the most part. Uh, and please check out the newsletter, if you're not familiar with it, at Substack. It's uh, foreignexchangesfx.substack.com. Um, if you're interested in coverage of foreign affairs and u.s foreign policy i think it's I'm, I'm biased obviously but i think it's one of the best places out there for that sort of thing so uh, come check it out sign up for our free email list um and then maybe at some point you'll want to become a paid subscriber who knows i don't want to put any pressure on anybody you know do you do what you need to do uh, <laughs> but uh, anyway, thanks for, for being here, and I'm very pleased to welcome back to the program this week uh, a returning guest, Andrew Fishman. Uh, hasn't been on for a while, actually, unfortunately. Uh, I don't know why that is. Uh, but Andrew is a contributing writer at The Intercept. He's formerly managing editor of The Intercept Brazil. Uh, he is, uh, in other words, very well placed to take us through the ups and downs, the topsy turvy life of Jair Bolsonaro, uh, the president of Brazil, who's had some run ins with the law lately, as he continues to talk about maybe possibly just kind of not accepting the results of next year's presidential election. Nothing, no big deal. Just, you know, maybe, maybe if he doesn't like it, if it looks like it's, you know, it's not, not good, he might just, you know, might just say, eh, we're not going to pay attention to that. So, you know, uh, just the normal kinds of things that happen in a democracy, in a functioning democracy. Uh, so we're going to get Andrew on here in a, in a moment to talk about why Jair Bolsonaro is talking about maybe not <laughs> accepting the results of next year's election. Uh, spoiler, it has to do with the fact that he's probably going to lose that election. Uh, we'll talk about why that is. We'll talk about what he's been saying. We'll talk about his new legal troubles, such as they are. Uh, and uh, we'll talk a little bit about, uh, how do I put this diplomatically, how much damage Bolsonaro could do between now and the election, assuming that he does lose and assuming that he does decide magnanimously to accept his loss and go away, uh, that's still months away. So there's a lot of time here for, for him to play around and uh, and do do some damage. So we're going to talk to Andrew about that as well. Uh, it'll have a lot to do with the Amazon, just uh, you know, kind of forewarning you. Uh, so with all that said, uh, let me get Andrew on the Zoom here and we'll get started with the interview. 
All right. As promised in the introduction, I am joined by returning guest, although it's been too long, uh, Andrew Fishman of The Intercept, uh, formerly managing editor of The Intercept Brazil. Uh, he's joining us all the way from Brazil itself. Uh, so he's well placed to talk about uh, really one of the heroes of this program. We are a pro Bolsonaro uh, podcast here at Foreign Exchanges, uh, Brazilian President Jair Bolsonaro and his uh, latest kind of, you know, uh, the latest uh, happenings in his life. Andrew, thank you for coming on the program. Thanks for having me back. Yeah, The Intercept is very pro-Bolsonaro also. We, we, <laughs> we I get him. that. Yeah, I get that in your coverage. Absolutely. Um, so obviously, we're, we're going to be talking about uh, what seems like an emerging plan that Bolsonaro can't, isn't subtle enough to shut up and stop talking about to basically discard the results of next year's presidential election. Uh, but before we get there, we need to lay a little bit of background. And there are, I think, two main things we need to talk about. First is why Bolsonaro's popularity has cratered uh, of late. And the second is the fact that he now faces uh, a truly uh, imposing challenger. And, and of course, that's uh, Lula. We'll get to him in a, in a moment. Let's start with Bolsonaro. Can you take us through kind of, um, you know, obviously his response to the pandemic didn't win him. His very Trumpian, let's say, response to the pandemic didn't win him a lot of support. Uh, but for a while there, he rolled out a, a, a relief program that seemed to get people, uh, you know, kind of on board or at least uh, improved his popularity a little bit. Uh, but he's really cratering again. Talk about the the ups and downs of uh, Bolsonaro's response to COVID and, and how that's impacted his popularity. Sure. So when Bolsonaro came into office, he actually had a pretty good approval rating, um, more approval than disapproval. And that's like every Brazilian president ever has had that because basically people are like, all right, this guy won. And so I hope that Brazil does well. So I hope that this guy does well because he's in charge of Brazil now. Um, it always happens. And then as time goes on, these things tend to go down, except for in the case of Lula, where he you know left on a, on a big high. But you know, Bolsonaro started up high, and then even though he had a strong disapproval, and right now he's down to like 20-something percent approval, which is like his solid base, just like Bol uh, Trump has his solid base um, that he's basically unshakable. They, they love the guy, and they're never going never gonna to leave him. But so he got... He kept going down because, one, you know, he's the anti-corruption candidate, quote-unquote, even though he, his whole career in politics is, like, you know, aligning with mafias and, <laughs> you know, doing very sketchy deals on the side. And But a lot of that didn't... I mean, it was obvious. and It was, you know, he's openly aligning himself with these criminal gangs. But a lot of the scandals didn't come out until after he was elected. And they just kept coming, one after another. I mean, he had... Um, these, you know, ghosts, phantom employees in his uh, office and in his son's uh, offices where they would pay people not to show up and they'd, they'd kick the money back to them. That came out. Uh, his son had a, a, a chocolate shop that was like the most lucrative chocolate shop in the world um, <laughs> that they're using for money laundering. And that came out. Oh they had all God. these suspicious real estate deals. And then there was ties with him to um, uh, the assassination of of uh, city councilwoman Marielle Franco that, you know, they just kept coming out more and more information how, how closely aligned he was with the people right at the middle of the scandal and how they were helping to cover it up. And then, you know, he tried to interfere in the federal police to get rid of the people that were not 
you know, extremely loyal to, so that he could protect his family from prosecution. He interfered in the justice ministry and, you know, basically anything that he could, the, the public prosecutor's office, to put, um, uh, you know, very close allies in these positions to, to protect himself. Um, and that definitely took a, a bit of the, the sheen off of him. But he still had, like, pretty decent approval ratings. But then COVID came around, and in the very beginning, he was basically, you know, neck and neck with Trump, saying the same stuff of, you know, it's not a big deal, we've got to focus on the economy, it's just a little flu, forget about it. But then Trump, you know, he was playing a double game, and he, at the same time, was, like, investing heavily in vaccines, and he eventually started changing his tone when he saw how bad things were getting. Trump just, like, doubled, or, or Bolsonaro doubled and tripled down. He never let go of this narrative, even today, you know. And he always just said, like, he, he literally said, like, uh, don't be a pussy. And that's, that's generally his... his um, his attitude about about this, but he also blocked governors and, and um, mayors from doing anything to to limit the spread, and he blocked any initiatives that would you know do some, any sort of quarantines. And, and this in is the beginning, after I mean Bolsonaro himself had COVID, and he's experienced oh yeah, maybe twice. the disease, maybe twice. Okay, yeah. and, and I mean he's experienced his... this and still is is talking like this. Uh, and I we I mean we should say also. Like this is the most hospitalized man in the world, the most hospitalized <laughs> world leader I've ever seen, and you know a lot of that is, I guess, some of that is at least tied to the the attack on him when he was running for president. But uh, still, like the the idea that he's sort of the the picture of health and you know kind of doesn't need medical care is uh, is a bit much. Yeah, uh, and he got stabbed in the stomach in twenty eighteen. He's had I don't know how many surgeries since then. He's always in the hospital. Um, he's. <laughs> He had all these, uh, you know, he does these Facebook lives and he, and for a bunch of them, he was, he was farting, like audibly farting on them. <laughs> you could oh, see his face. Lord. And then he had to go in the hospital because he had blockage. Uh, this was like a month ago. But um, his, his COVID response was, was that. And, and it was largely because of his ideology, his far right, you know, super libertarian ideology of, uh, you know, we don't want government interference in anything, get rid of all regulations, you know, let people do whatever they want to do, free market, baby. Um, and as a result, you know, so far, uh, 550, 560,000 people have died of COVID. Everybody knows somebody who's died or has been gravely ill. And, um, you know, the people, the public has really felt it. And, you know, different from the U.S., where there's a huge percentage of people that don't want to get vaccinated. In Brazil, it's like 90 to 95% in all the polls that have come out of people, of adults have said, I want, I've been vaccinated or I want to get vaccinated. So people, you know, uh, even though people are walking around without masks, people want this thing to be over. People know that it's a real thing. People have felt it. And he's clearly to blame for so much of what's happened. Um, and he's tried to, uh, since the very beginning, push the blame onto the governors and the mayors saying, actually, the federal government gave them money, but they didn't spend it. That, I mean, they gave them some money, but not they blocked as much as they could um, and limited their the things that they could do. Um, so it's their corruption that's causing this, and we're the honest anti-corruption people, and you know, it's, it's their fault, not ours. Um, but now this uh, Senate inquiry has started in, the, in late April, and since then, a, a slew of corruption scandals have come out involved at the federal level um, related to COVID. Um, you know, basically kickback schemes to, uh, for vaccine purchases. So they like waited and waited and, and wouldn't buy from Pfizer directly, wouldn't buy the AstraZeneca directly, like didn't take, didn't want to buy the, um, uh, the COVAX facility 
um, global system, they could have gotten 50% of the population vaccinated through that at a low cost. They ended up, they didn't want to, didn't want to. And finally they said, okay, we'll take 10%. And say, why? Oh, we don't want to have people to choose. We don't have to choose who's going to get it and who's not going to get it, which is obviously a bullshit excuse. (laughs) And later it's come out that, uh, you know, what they're waiting for when they did end up pushing very, you know, hard to, to try to close a deal, it was to get the, um, Covaxin from Bharat Pharmaceuticals in India through an intermediary company. And through that intermediary, they're able to have, uh, you know, uh, kickbacks, raise Everybody the price. Everybody has their hand out, yeah. Yeah, raise the price way above what it was supposed to be. And it came out, it seems, because there was basically two factions within the health ministry, two Bolsonarista factions within, within the health ministry that were fighting over who's going to get the, the corrupt contract. There was the military side, who also, you know, has always been uh, presented themselves as the anti-corruption force in Brazil. Like, we're the honest ones, the patriots. Um, obviously, that's not true, but that's what their messaging was when they could, you know, censor the media when they were a dictatorship. Um, and they still hold on to that. And then the other side was, like, the old guard politicians the, that's called the Centrão. It's like the oligarch parties, which Bolsonaro for a long time was part of, and his son may be uh, closely involved in all of this. They were also trying to get these same contracts. And so... It appears that because of this dispute, it ended up leaking to one side trying to spite the other side. And now all these other uh, cases are coming out where there was this huckster that came up, was able to negotiate with the top brass in the health ministry um, saying, hey, I can get you, you got what, 212 million people in Brazil? I can get you 400 million AstraZeneca shots. Oh, and if you want 200 million Johnson & Johnson shots, I can get you that too. And the, um, the top negotiator for the health ministry who is a um, uh, military man also, said, okay, but I need you to put uh, raise the price by a dollar per shot. So $400 million in, in bribes, basically, for kickbacks. Yeah. <laughs> but this company that, was, that came out and said they could do this, they, never, they didn't even represent the companies. They had no way of providing the vaccines because AstraZeneca uh, does not uh, negotiate through intermediaries. They only negotiate directly with... Um, with governments, same as Johnson and Johnson, and so it was basically just uh, a hoax. So the guy was actually a police captain, the one that was uh, that was initially making these contacts, and he got the, to got to them through a bunch of you know uh, shady people in Bolsonaro world, and so it just kind of has revealed this massive network of of not just corruption but like incompetence, incompetent corruption, um, and and it's that's been maybe like the last two months or so. And they've really been reeling from that, and their their approval rating has gone down dramatically. And at the same time, the economy has been terrible. Uh, you know, millions of people have gone into uh, hunger. They're doing nothing to help them. They 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 did um, some COVID financial relief for the poorest Brazilians, but you know they tried to block it, and they tried to cut the number, uh, and they they've done everything they can to. It's really been the opposition that's that's pushed that through, even though they've tried to take credit for it once it actually happened. Um, and so people are just looking at this government like, you know, they came in saying that they're new politics. It's going to end corruption and clean up the, you know, drain the swamp. But they are the swamp. They always have been the swamp. They're actually, um, you know, making the swamp deeper. And uh, a lot of people have have realized this and they're over. And even, you know, people in the elite that have been supporting Bolsonaro because of his economic agenda that's, you know, libertarian and pro-business, anti-worker. 
Yeah, I want to ask you about that because you you mentioned that, and I should say uh, the you you wrote a piece on the the vaccine kickback scheme just a couple of weeks ago. I'll have a link to mm-hmm. it in the show description. Uh, but on the subject of this libertarian ideology, um, obviously you know you're you're more attuned to what Bolsonaro really cares about or what what's really part of his kind of core. Uh, ideology than, than I am certainly, but it seemed like uh, in 2018 he sort of adopted this very pro-business economic agenda because he was trying to broaden his base outside of basically fans of the old military government. I mean, basically like, mm-hmm. you know, broaden it away from authoritarians or, or you know, kind of proto-fascists and and get in touch with the the, the kind of pro-business center-right uh, sort of, uh, you know, block. And, and obviously in opposition to the dastardly leftists in the Workers' Party. Um, do you, is, is Bolsonaro, I mean, is this like really Bolsonaro's thing? Like, does he really... Uh, care about libertarian kind of you know pro-business economic stuff or is that sort of a political bargain he's made uh with with people who can help him stay or get at one time get into power and now maybe stay in power i think that the consensus that basically anyone who's you know not on his team will give you people that deal with him directly people that uh you know are in in politics they all will say that Bolsonaro is an idiot. And that's <laughs> very important. <laughs> I mean, he is. He's a, he's a big dummy. He, the guy doesn't... He's, he's not reading, uh, you know, treatises and, and philosophy or anything. Um, but, you know, he came up um, as a poor kid. He got into the military. Uh, he became a captain. Um, he spent... He left from there. He became a city councilman, then became a, a, a federal uh, congressman. So he's, he's lived his whole life in government. And he comes out of this, you know, authoritarian military structure that during the military dictatorship. And he was very much in favor of the military dictatorship, law and order, uh, you know, these traditional uh, macho Christian fundamentalist values. I think he definitely uh, is from that milieu and has that worldview. Um, and part of that is, you know, has this, uh, you know, you, you have to respect authority and the, the, you know, the hierarchy of, of society and, and, you know, there's, there's the winners and the losers and the, and the winners have the right to, to control things as, as they go. Um, but he was always a statist because, you know, in Brazil, the government uh, controls a big part of the economy and always has. So this opening to the, you know, market interests, I do think was a, an electoral pivot. Um, that he needed to expand his uh, his base of elite support to for his candidacy to go forward, um, but it's not extremely different from his his authoritarian worldview before because you know it's just corporate authoritarianism instead of military corporate authoritarianism, so it's not a huge uh, leap. But yeah, the the person that's that's really pushing this this agenda. I mean, he's not he's not able to articulate uh, this agenda on his own. He he put. Uh, Paulo Gedges, who's a a wealthy, very wealthy uh, investment banker um, in Brazil, who went to the University of Chicago way back in the day, and his first gig out of school was being an advisor to Augusto Pinochet in Chile in the for the dictatorship. So uh, you know that's also you know military authoritarianism. It all comes together, and you know their policies are 
you know, we was, I was, saw him at doing a campaign event or a pre-campaign event in Florida in 2017 or 2016. And he said to all these, you know, Brazilian expats that very similar in p- politics to the v- Venezuelan or Cuban expats that you find in Florida too, saying, you know, America is the number one country in the world because they don't have uh, workers' rights. You know, workers' rights... Uh, they just bring you down and look at all the workers and everyone's rich in, in America. And that's what we want to bring to Brazil. Like, you know, we need to get rid of these. Um, and that's that was his agenda. That's their agenda. Everyone's applauding. That's what yeah, everyone's pushing. rich here. Yeah, there you go. Exactly. And they want to privatize everything. And that's uh, what they've been doing. I think that's more from the Pablo Gaggi side of thing than than Bolsonaro, who's, you know, before used to support uh, state enterprises. But it's not a huge leap for him. And he's, you know. He doesn't really care, I don't think. Is whatever you, that's that's a whatever you can do to get uh, to stay in power in, in that that sphere is like great. Let's do it. It's you know. <laughs> you could. It's easy to belabor the comparison to Trump, but every, there's a lot of stuff here that you, you you're you're as you're describing Bolsonaro that rings true for Donald oh, yeah. Trump also. Um, and it's not. I mean, it's not just the stuff where Bolsonaro is sort of openly copying Trump. They just have a lot of things in common, it seems like. Um, when you talk about the level of corruption that that we that Brazil has seen under Bolsonaro, uh, comparing it to the kinds of things that, that the Trump administration got up to, a lot of what Trump did that really offended people here was not so much kind of openly breaking the law or breaking, you know, actual uh, rules on the book, but it was testing or violating norms. Um, Mm -hmm. I'm curious whether that's the same phenomenon in Brazil or if Bolsonaro has been kind of just more openly flouting. And obviously the vaccine kickback thing seems just completely illegal. Uh, But, you know, how much of, of Bolsonaro is sort of testing the norms of Brazilian politics versus testing the letter of the law. I mean, yes, it's it's very much that way. It's about uh, changing the norms. But in, for the elite sectors, at least, I mean, the elite supported the military coup in, in 64. They were, you know, uh, hand in glove with, with the military this whole time. They have been allied with every single government, um, you know, the, the Centrão and, and the financial elite. They just want to get theirs, and, th- and they're happy when that happens, and they're angry when that's not happening. And so right now the economy is bad, and it looks like it's going to get, you know, Bolsonaro government is not sophisticated enough to do the things that they're promising they want to do. And that's why, in large part, the elite is pushing away. But what they're using, what they're saying, and, you know, on a more personal level, it's like the reason why they actually are turning against Bolsonaro is because of this, uh, this norm testing uh, or breaking where he's openly threatening military coup basically every other week and he's you know openly degrading the electoral system and trying to undermine it and he's um you know openly uh, antagonizing the supreme court and the congress and and you know putting his his cronies into all the major um uh ministries i mean they were all okay with him doing this stuff before but then once the economic situation and their you know long-term view changed and it's like okay well you know, now everyone's coming out making these these very high-minded declarations, saying, uh, you know, we we need we we believe the elite of Brazil. This is a, a banker saying this, actually saying we the elite. You know, not even <laughs> sugarcoating. Like we the elite of Brazil. You know, we we believe in democratic institutions and investors only want to invest in democracies, um, and and therefore, you know, we we cannot support these uh, 
these uh, these declarations and these actions by Bolsonaro and his threats to the you know electoral system when like you know if he's costing coup... us money. I mean, come on, like it's beyond yeah. the pale now. But it's also <laughs> bullshit. I mean, if if he were going to do a coup and it was going to make them money, then they would be like, you know, this democracy thing is really not working out. It's having, it's causing a lot of problems because they've done that in the past. There have been nine coups in Brazil's history um, and they, they just came <laughs> off of one. I mean, they're not the, the greatest defenders of, of democracy here, um, but they're, they're saying they are. But it's really, yeah, the, the norms are, are grading and it's, and it's making Brazil a pariah internationally and the, the norm breaking that is. And but it's really more about the, you know, the economic and governance uh, perspective, like they're just they're just very incompetent and they're not able to do the things that they're promising they're going to do. And it's causing more headaches than it's than it's worth. Investors don't want to don't want to invest in a place that seems very unstable. The other piece of this aside from the Bolsonaro's own loss of popularity is that he's now facing a, a major challenger in, in, in potentially in next year's election in the form of former Brazilian president Luis Inacio Lula da Silva or Lula. Uh, this is a story that you personally have covered, that The Intercept has covered uh, intensely. Um, uh, talk a little bit, uh, without going back into the whole Lava Jato saga, um, can you tell us a little bit about what happened with Lula's prosecution and why he's now not only a free man again, but he's actually uh, allowed to run for office, which is, you know, a, a, you know, a, another kind of uh, uh, step along the, the road, I guess. Sure. So the nutshell to get us up to, to the current stage right now is uh, Lula's prosecuted as part of the, the largest anti-corruption uh, prosecution in, in Brazilian, maybe world history. Um, the charges against him were super weak and in many cases seemed trumped up, uh, but he was still uh, convicted and sent to prison uh, right before the 2018 election, which is what paved the way for Bolsonaro to become the front runner because Lula was the front runner at the time. Um, he, uh, the, the judge in the case became best friends with Bolsonaro and became his justice minister. Um, eventually, they, they parted ways, and then The Intercept revealed uh, a bunch of uh, hacks, uh, chats between the prosecutors and the, the judge showing that they were actually colluding and that they you know, didn't believe in their case and that there was all these irregularities and illegalities and, and problems in the prosecution that it was, you know, it was clearly politicized, too. So the Supreme Court, you know, first, this is they you know fought a tooth and nail, and there was threatening us, the, you know, to you know do raids on us and maybe send us to, to prison. Um, but eventually, and and you know the, the mainstream was kind of resisting this, but eventually it became like too irrefutable, and the po the position, the popularity of, of Bolsonaro with the elite changed, and it kind of created the political atmosphere possible, so that um, the Supreme Court. Um, vacated the rulings against Lula, and they they started first with a like on a technical ruling, so didn't talk about him. And then they eventually did vacate, and they ruled that the judge was suspect, um, that he was partial. Um, judge Sergio Moro, um, who wanted to be the president, I don't know if he's got the chance anymore. Um, <laughs> so now Lula's out of jail, his political rights are restored, and he's able to run for office. And he did the whole, like, will he run, won't he run? But he's always going to run. He's, he's made it clear that he's going to run. And he's right now the front runner, and he might even win the first round, you know, with over 50% of the vote. So that's what's 
got Bolsonaro terrified. And there's this amazing video that I, I'll try to send you the clip and you can put it in the show notes of the moment where Bolsonaro finds out that Lula uh, is free. And he just looks <laughs> oh, man, so, oh, so good. miserable. <laughs> it's like, oh, shit. <laughs> and, you know, he was right because uh, ever since then, Lula's been... Uh, on the offensive, he's been giving him the one-two. He's been doing his, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm young and I'm fit, even though he's, you know, I think he's 76 right now. He's pretty old. Um, I'm young and I'm fit and I'm ready to fight and I'm running five miles a day and I'm going to the gym and he's, he's been, you know, traveling around Brazil trying to talk to bankers and talk to, uh, his, you know, build up his base and, and make alliances with the, with the center um, who's disenchanted with, um, with Bolsonaro and, and, like, trying to build his coalition for... Uh, for next year's election. Um, still not sure who his vice is going to be, but they floated that maybe like a, a sort of more progressive-ish leaning uh, billionaire. Um, and they floated a few other ideas, but it, it's clear that he's, he's trying to become like the consensus uh, alternative to, to Bolsonaro and, and moderate and just like, you know, things are pretty good when I was president. Like I know, you know, the PT's term didn't end great, but when I was president, things were awesome. And like, we can just like go back to some normalcy. It's very much a a Biden-esque sort of um, pitch. Like, you know, that was pretty crazy. Let's just go back to how things were and just try to make things a little more normal. And like, let's be responsible adults here. And like, we'll all sit down. You know me, you trust me. Um, and let's all be friends. Um, and it's working because everyone wants to go back to the Lula years. The Lula years are great. The elite made more money in the Lula years than they ever did in, in any other period. Um, and, the, you know, the they got the votes, too. So, um, yeah, that's one of the ironies of, of this, <laughs> how hard the elite have come down on the Workers' Party ever since. And yet they did very, very well for themselves uh, when Lula was in office. It's one of the one of the interesting ironies here. And uh, you talk you you mentioned Lula's age. I mean, he he will be um, 77. He'll turn 77 next year, theoretically, after his uh, after his theoretical uh, presidential victory. Um, And yet I, I feel like. It, it would be very hard for Bolsonaro to to run against his age when he's in the hospital every other <laughs> month with something and like, you know, sending out pictures of himself with tubes up his nose and walking around with it. It's just going to be hard to run on like a health campaign oh, no. uh, for for this guy. Um, you also I mean, you also mentioned Sergio Moro. I think people should know if they if they are unfamiliar. Uh, Moro did become Bolsonaro's justice minister and then quit the corruption got too much even for the guy who basically arranged for bolsonaro's election uh the corruption became too much and he he quit so uh yeah he's kind of uh he's not in the cabinet anymore um and as you say probably had some pretensions to to being president one day but i don't i don't know if that's in the cards for him anymore and you know what he did after he quit (laughs) what's that he became a um a consultant, quote unquote, management consultant, because he's not legally able to be a lawyer for them. But he became a, a consultant to, for um, this company that was working for one of the main companies that was prosecuted under him during Lava Jato. Oh my God! So he's making hundreds <laughs> of thousands a you know a month Incredible. or whatever a year to to consult for how they can like manage their their structured bankruptcy. Um, so yeah, he's he's very principled guy. <laughs> And we should that all, is that and is he's something. living in DC right now too. 
Oh, is he really? I didn't. I didn't yeah. know that. That's so anyone in DC go to Georgetown and say hi to Sergio Moreno and his wife. All the finest people really are living in DC. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so this brings us up. Then this kind of sets the 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 tone. Uh, uh, there's an election next year that Bolsonaro is very likely to lose. Uh, quite possibly will lose in. I, I think you would have to say a landslide. I mean, if Lula won in the first round against an incumbent. Uh, that would be sort of a shocking defeat for an incumbent president. Uh, and and he's been making a lot of noise. And you've, you've written about this recently, you know, making a lot of moves uh, to make some changes to the electoral system ahead of the election. So what what are some of the things that Bolsonaro has been claiming uh, and what are some of the steps that he and, and his allies in the Congress are, are trying to undertake uh, ahead of the the election next year. Yeah, so he won the 2018 election and almost immediately, just like Trump, started saying, actually, that election that I won, it was fraudulent. It's like, wait, you and all of your allies just came in a sweeping <laughs> wave. Why are you saying this is a fraud? It's like, because I should have won in the first round and they, you know, they cut back my votes. And so this is, it's fraudulent and we need to fix the system for the next time. Otherwise, the next election will also be fraudulent and illegitimate. And what he wants to do is, uh, right now, there's a, a nationwide system of digital um, uh, voting system where everyone just, you know, you, they do f- fingerprint identification and they, they place their vote and it, it's automatically processed and it's much quicker and, and more efficient than the craziness in the U.S. where like every state has their own. Um, no, and no hanging chads. He wants to change it to a system that has uh, a digital um, voting system plus a, like a paper receipt that it prints out and then you can you do an audit of it. Uh, of those paper receipts, and if there's uh, any sort of you know major statistical variation from in the paper receipts versus the digital record, then you do a full audit, which is actually the same system they had in, in Venezuela. Um, and it sounds pretty reasonable until you start thinking about like how this would actually play out in Brazil. And there's uh, some good analysts that did uh, some interesting uh, work on this, or you know explanations of this. Is basically like you know if the the auditable code and the open source code is legit and, and they're, they're counting things well. It's, it's very hard to, um, to manipulate those numbers or to contest those numbers. But it's much easier to contest the paper ballots because you can remove some of the paper ballots. You can, um, you, know, you can probably falsify those much more easily than you could this you know, massive uh, uh, computer system. And then you can say, well, look, you know, this region that's controlled by my allies and you know, militias and you know, mafias, they said the paper ballot is illegitimate, so you know, therefore it's easier to um, claim that the, the, the whole nationwide digital system is, is invalid without actually having to you know, hack it. Um, another way that you could do it is you can let people know, like, hey, you know, they're going to be reading out all of these paper ballots before they vote, and we told you, um, you know, we the mafia that runs this, this neighborhood or this town, that you have to vote for this candidate. And so if we see that you didn't vote for this guy, like, you know, we're going to kill you, we're going to rough you up, or you're going you're gonna to have troubles. Um, and so it's a way to, like, have this implicit um, intimidation or threats and, and for people to have a little less confidence that their vote is actually anonymous. Um, and in those ways, like, it, that definitely serves his interests um, and the interests of, you know, the old, you know, they call it, like, the kernel system, you know, in, the, in a lot of places in the interior You'll have like one old colonel that kind of runs the town. And he he always elects all of his representatives, and it's easier for them to, you know, intimidate. Um, so that's the one that he wants. But I think he's kind of always known that this isn't going to pass. 
but it's a way for him to say like, you know, I told you what needs to be done. It's very simple. It's very reasonable and technical and you're not doing it. And so therefore the entire election is illegitimate. If I win, of course, and like there wasn't any fraud, but if I lose, then obviously it was fraudulent and we can't accept it. And like, we need to do a coup. Um, and that's what the main thing that he's been focused on. His allies, which he's, you know, grown closer and closer with the Centrão, the oligarch parties that uh, he ran against, but uh, now he's like very much in bed with them. The, uh, the, one of the Centrão leaders is now his chief of staff at the president in the presidential palace. So that's how close they are. Um, they've been trying to do a, bun- a whole slew of, of reforms. That'd be the biggest changes since the constitution was enacted in '88. Um, and they want to do things like, well, this one actually just got shot uh, d- uh, down, but they wanted to make it, instead of doing proportional allocation of votes, you know, so the votes go to the parties and you can vote for the individual or the party, like, you don't know who, but you want the PT to win. So you vote for the PT and then those votes will help push up, you know, the the next closest candidate that uh, that w- had a number enough number of votes to win. So it can make it so that the PT candidates have a lower threshold to win a seat than if they were to get direct votes and it's just it's kind of a way that it's a way that a lot of this proportional allocation works in a lot of countries they wanted to get rid of that and just make it so you know highest vote getters win but in brazil like if you if you're a voter in sao paulo you have uh in the last election you had for the federal congress it was 16 or 1800 candidates from like more than two dozen uh parties that you had to choose from. You're not voting for like a district, you know, just your area. You're voting for the whole slate. So it makes it really complicated for a voter to figure out who they want to vote for. Like, do you vote for the the star from the PT if you're a PT voter and that person gets 3 million votes and then it like totally eliminates the chance that the other PT candidates that were also good to win or then do you vote for the smaller ones? And it, it makes it just incredibly confusing when you think about it. And it benefits the people that have money, that have fame, that can run big ad campaigns, that can you know run big YouTube campaigns, that can use their their you know mafias and, and uh, colonel you know uh, local regional controls and say the gang says you vote for this guy, and then if you have a network of those, then the gang says in this neighborhood you vote for this guy, in the other neighborhood you vote for that guy, and then they can actually articulate it much more smoothly in a way that they can get all of their candidates pushed forward. Um, and who it hurts is the poorer parties. Uh, the opposition parties, the leftist parties, the, you know, the ones that don't have the cash to, or the celebrities, um, and celebrities tend to be rich, and the rich tend to vote with the oligarchs. Um, so that would be a, a big problem. They, was, they were able to, to push this one down, but something they really wanted. And then the other big one they're doing right now is they're just completely rewriting the electoral code. with 900, It's like a 900-article uh, um, bill, huge, that would in many, many different ways, legalize electoral corruption or decriminalize it. Um, it takes things that you could lose your political rights for over, you could go to jail over, you could get your election um, rescinded. Um, instead now, those things would be like, be much harder to find out that you did them. Some of those things will be legal. Some of those things would just be, you get a, a slap on the wrist fine, um, and you couldn't, you wouldn't lose your political rights or get uh, your, your seat taken away unless you, there, you could prove that you use corruption and that uh, uh, violence, and that violence was the reason that um, the, the votes were swayed. So it raises the, the burden of proof dramatically and it reduces the, the fines. And this includes campaign finance violations. So, you know, illegal um, payments, you know, off the books payments to, to campaigns. This used to be something you'd go to jail for. 
And now it was a big part of Lava Jato. And now it would just be like, uh, oh, if we find out, then you, you can do like an, a settlement and you just pay a fine, basically. Um, no big deal. So obviously encourages this sort of corruption in the, in the campaigns. And uh, it also would take the main uh, electoral judicial authority and give them just dramatically reduce their powers. So you, they have to give them less documentation. They have less authority to, you know, you look into the documentation they have and it's harder for them to, to make rulings. And then the, the Congress would be able to overturn whatever rulings that they did make if they didn't like them. Um, and that and, you know, a million other things, which uh, includes, uh, there have been a lot of measures to legally require parties to push more um, uh, uh, gender and racial diversity in their candidates and equally distribute the money. Under this new system, oh yeah, you still have to equally distribute the money, but if a woman candidate wants to uh, use her allotment of the money and give it to another candidate, then she's allowed to do that. So obviously you just take... If she know, wants to. Yeah, know. if she wants to. If she so wants you, just, to. you just put up somebody's uh, cousin and then you have her take the money. She's never a real candidate in the first place. It's just like a, 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 a farcical candidate, um, which is something they already kind of do. Um, and it would there's a bunch of other reforms they're trying to do, but basically... The general consensus is all these measures that they're trying to push forward just lets people that are already in power stay in power. It makes it harder to have more uh, diversity. It makes it uh, easier to commit, you know, electoral day uh, uh, crimes like, you know, busing people in or loudspeakers or, or putting people right in front of the polling place to kind of do some intimidation or coercion. Um, all that, you know, it's just going to basically be a, a green light. And it's going to help them, and it's going to hurt the opposition parties, the leftists, and uh, uh, you know, gender and racial um, minorities. Uh, I mean, we need we certainly need to talk about the impromptu military parade this week, because that's just a, a fascinating insight into the psychology of Bolsonaro, I think. But uh, I, I do want to ask you, you, you know, your piece talks. Um, you know, goes into goes into a, some you know detail about the central and these kind of longer reaching or farther reaching uh, changes that that they're pushing to the electoral code and to to elections. Is it your sense that I mean, this is a group that, as you say, has allied itself with Bolsonaro? Uh, do they would they be prepared to ditch Bolsonaro if it meant getting? These other reforms, like what is the priority here for the uh, the oligarchs? And if he gets to the point where he's sort of too embarrassing and, and with all the kind of uh, intimations of a coup and, and that sort of thing, would they be prepared to kind of uh, cut him loose and, and just focus on these other things that they want? They would absolutely be prepared to cut him loose, but not because he's too embarrassing. They'd be... <laughs> absolutely prepared to cut him loose as they've done time and time again with all their you know previous uh, you know political uh, presidential candidates when he no longer is able to be the best vehicle for their interests i mean if it's once it, if it becomes clear that both that lula is going to win and that they're not going to be able to you know find another way to block his candidacy or like you know he's not going to drop dead of a heart attack at some point then you're going to see them jumping ship quickly I and mean, some of them are already like going over to his side but you know, they're they're pragmatists uh, for their for their economic interests, and you know, if, if it means that a coup is the best way that's going to advance their interests, and they're going to be able to still stay in power, then they're going to go for the coup. 
if if they think that Bolsonaro is going to be the best chance that they have, they're going to go with Bolsonaro. And and if they were and if they choose wrong, and someone else gets elected, then they're going to quickly pivot and say, hey, you know, so sorry about that, but you know how it goes in politics. And we just we really think that we have a lot in common. So let's see how we can get along here. I mean, this is what they've always done. They've they've the Centrum parties have been um, supported every single government since the um, end of the dictatorship, and they were closely aligned uh, with the dictatorship. Um, and, you know, they did the same stuff before. They've, they're the ruling class for a reason, um, and they're able to stay that way, and they're able to find a way to make money. And that's why, you know, generally the, the coverage calls it, says is that they're, they're non-ideological pragmatists, but they're, they have an ideology. It's, it's, you know, the perpetuation of their power. And, that's, <laughs> yeah, and that that's... perpetuation of power is usually a very right-wing uh, perpetu- uh, you know, support of right-wing policies that limit labor protections, that limit um, uh, worker rights, that limit you know distribution of of income and 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 wealth, and um, you know creates the system in a way that allows them to do whatever they want and not get caught. It's pretty easy. <laughs> yeah, it's you know funny what gets classified as non-ideological, but um, <laughs> let's talk for for a moment here about the military parade earlier this week um congress had was uh it was the same day they were to vote on the the measure to um introduce these paper alternative uh, or paper receipts i guess uh alongside the electronic voting system and uh bolsonaro was expecting to lose the vote he did in fact lose the vote uh, but in the meantime, uh, the Brazilian Navy, I think it was, uh, kind mm-hmm. of organized this parade that nobody seems to have known about, although they claim it was uh, supposed to have been mm-hmm. uh, on the schedule for some time. Nobody seems to have heard about it until the day before. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the vote was on Tuesday. So this was like, like Tuesday morning. There's just you know military equipment kind of rolling down the streets. Uh, in a parade that nobody had heard about until a few hours beforehand. Talk a little bit about uh, how that all came to pass and what the uh, uh, how it was received, let's say, in in uh, in Brazil. I think we first need to shed a tear for Trump because he wanted his parade. He never got his big beautiful parade. <laughs> That's and true. Trump yeah, did, right. The the student has surpassed the teacher in a sense. That's right. Although I think Trump probably would have made fun of the parade for being. Um, weak and pathetic because there's only like <laughs> 40 vehicles. Um, but yeah, they, so this, you know, this pa- uh, paper ballot initiative has always been a pretense to contest the 2022 election, right? It's not, it's not a serious proposal um, as far as I understand it. Um, and that's why a lot of people just have kind of cast it aside. Um, but in, for whatever reason, coincidentally, uh, they really started ramping up the rhetoric about this paper balloting right as the Senate inquiry into the pandemic started. All of a sudden, you know, this is the issue we need to be talking about. It's paper ballots, paper ballots, election, election. Let's forget about this other thing that's happening that's, you know, showing how terrible we are. Um, so they push it forward, they push forward. And, and at uh, some point in, in July, in early July, it was reported, and this was denied, but the reporters stand with it. And I, I believe that this uh, likely is true, um, that the... The defense minister told the the speaker of the lower house, who's responsible for pushing this vote forward uh, or not, said, if we do not have paper ballots, there will not be an election in 2022, which is exactly what uh, Bolsonaro was saying. And allegedly, you know, he said this through an intermediary to give some plausible deniability. But allegedly, when he made this claim, 
the heads of the three um, branches of the armed forces were present and obviously didn't say anything um, to oppose this. So this is an explicit threat from the defense minister and the, the three heads of the armed forces who were recently changed because they weren't sufficiently loyal enough, saying, do this thing that Bolsonaro wants or we're going to help him do a coup. I mean, it's a threat, how real that is. You know, they made it in the way that it was plausibly deniable. It gets reported. Um, and the, the speaker interpreted it as a threat of a coup. It gets reported and they go, no, 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 no. We never said that. That's, that's ridiculous. We never said such a thing. But however, you know, this, this paper balloting thing, it is quite a, you know, legitimate idea. And it would be good for democracy to have, you know, faith in elections. You know, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. So the, the vote goes to, the, the, the initiative goes to vote in a congressional committee and it fails. It's a big defeat for Bolsonaro and he's, he's whining and he's crying and then, and he's, he's saying, you know, we don't want this to die. And so the speaker, you know, initially wanted to just get this thing over with, said, you know what? All right, new strategy. Let's put it to a vote in the, on the floor. And at, at first there was like kind of an outcry and then people realized what he was doing, that he knew that they didn't have enough votes and it was gonna, he was going to kill it um, with the second vote. So, which is what Bolsonaro wanted. He wanted this, this other vote. But then he realized he, that he couldn't whip the votes in time, so he, he tries to push him to, to push back the date of the vote to give him more time to build support and buy, buy support. Um, he, the speaker said no, because he wants to kill this thing. And so Bolsonaro, with his military allies, most likely, decide, all right, we're going to do a little show of force. We're going to intimidate them. Maybe by doing this parade, we can push back the date. Or just you know change the news cycle, um, whatever their true motivation was. Uh, right after it's announced that like the vote's not going to change, immediately after the Navy puts out this this message saying we're doing a parade. Uh, it's going to be in Brasilia. We're going to like we're, we're doing a big fancy parade to deliver an invitation to the president. You know this, they don't need a parade to give him a piece of paper, and. They got 40 vehicles with tanks and trucks and whatever. It was, it was kind of pathetic. The tanks are little tiny, like, rinky-dink things <laughs> spewing a lot of fumes. And there's a lot of, like, hilarious photos of, of these pathetic tanks um, going through the streets. But, you know, it is actually quite a serious thing. I mean, there's never been uh, a military parade in Brasilia um, during the democratic regime. It's, it's very symbolically important. And, you know, in standing in, they go past the, the Congress... But standing in front of the, the presidential palace, you got Bolsonaro, you have the heads of all the armed forces, you have a defense minister, you have key um, Bolsonaro allies, you have you know, all these people that are basically endorsing this, this threat, this implicit but quite explicit threat to the Congress. Um, and it got a lot of attention, but it was also you know, quite pathetic. Let me find this. The, there's a quote from a senator, the guy who's running the Senate inquiry, which was, uh, I thought, amazing where he said, all right, one sec. Okay, so he said, every public figure, he actually said every public man, because he has this antiquated way of speaking, every public man, in addition to fulfilling his constitutional functions, should fear ridicule. But Bolsonaro doesn't care for any of these limits, as is clear in today's pathetic scene, which only shows the threat of a weakling who knows he has lost. Um, I think it's kind of the consensus uh, view, opposition view of, of the parade. But, you know, it is, it is one more indication, uh, one more piece of information in this puzzle that Bolsonaro, you know, 
is wants he's going to contest the election. He wants to do a, a coup. If he can get away with it, he will. And he has some level of military support. The question, the big question, the big unknown is how much and whether they'll they'll follow through with it. Because, you know, the military elite, uh, they didn't like Bolsonaro originally. I mean, he was always the like a, a troublemaker and like a bad officer and sort of like a like an embarrassment. Um, and they have these very cushy positions where they get paid huge sums of money to do nothing. I mean, what what sort of what was the last war that Brazil fought in? They were in World War II for like a hot second, right? As they were clear that the <laughs> allies were going to win. They jumped into Italy and sent like 15,000 troops. Um, and their only allies are really, you know, internal. They make these massive salaries. They have all these benefits that they get, you know, double, double pay and, um, and benefits. They get uh, salaries for, for life when they retire. And up until recently, they're like unwed daughters make these other, as these massive stipends that they get. And it's just like, it's called a mamata. Like it's like sucking on the tit of the government. Um, and they have like the best mamata in, in the whole country and they have all this power. Um, but they, you know, they got, and after democratization where they were able to get an amnesty and they weren't, they didn't get, you know, we never really looked into the, all the crimes that they committed during the dictatorship and all the corruption that they had in addition to the human rights violations, you know, they, they sort of laid low and were able to just kind of make these, um, more subtle gestures behind the scenes to assert their their authority in politics, but you know, start leading up to the 2018 election, they decided like we're going to make an explicit strategy to um, be more active in politics. And so they said, you know, all the military guys need to make Twitter accounts and they need to make start making declarations, public declaration about politics, things that you know actually is unconstitutional, but no one's going to check them on it. And you know. We're going to try to get uh, get get in through through electoral process. So Bolsonaro was a vehicle for that, where he was you know he won. He's an ex-military guy, but he brought all of these military guys into the uh, government. You know, into all these important positions, and all the you know over a thousand uh, military officials had been uh, given appointments in in the Bolsonaro government. They also have you know other people that that won elections, and they've they've clearly had a much bigger role in politics. And so the question is, are they just going to like? They could keep this going and keep going this way, or are they going to just, you know, throw everything up in the air and, and really take a, a risk to keep Bolsonaro in power and and do, you know, a, a constitutional break, a coup, or whatever it's going to be? Um, and it's unclear, but you know, the U.S. government seems to not be interested in this. Uh, they they've said it, you know, it, it leaked that. Uh, the national security advisor, Jake Sullivan, told Bolsonaro, like, cut the shit out with the you know, undermining elections. You know, they didn't support the right wing attempted um, coup in, in Peru. Um, and, you know, the, the market doesn't seem to be totally interested in, in perpetuating him because they see him as a, as a disaster and they could probably just, you know, get what they want better with a Lula government, even though they don't love him. Um, so if you don't have the market and you don't have the U.S. and you don't have, you know, your local elite, it seems like you're unlikely to give up this this cushy spot that you have right now. So, I mean, we can see what, what will change. We can see how the politics of things change. We can see, you know, if the economy starts picking up, it's it's kind of lagging now, but it is recovering, but not as much as they had hoped or expected. Uh, if the economy picks up, that could be good for Bolsonaro. If like vaccinations work and the gamma variant overwhelms the delta variant we don't have a new spike in in deaths and cases like 
people get back to normal. Maybe they kind of forget about the Bolsonaro's disaster from this year. But uh, that's all what's kind of on the what's to be determined in the next uh, year, year and a few months before the election. Um, I do want to want to ask you as we sort of close about uh, how much damage Bolsonaro could do in that next year, which I think you and I have both have said, uh, you know, is considerable. Um, but uh, briefly, the, the, he's now Bolsonaro is now wound up uh, talking about, you know, undermining the election so much that he's bought himself a couple of legal problems. Right. He's an under investigation now from the, the Supreme uh, Electoral Court. He's under investigation from the Supreme Court itself now. Uh, is this. I mean, are these investigations just kind of an embarrassment? Is there something that could result from them uh, that would have a tangible impact on Bolsonaro and his presidency? Um, or, or you know, is it just sort of a, a, a show thing? Like, you know, how embarrassing that, that the president's uh, being investigated by the judiciary? I mean, yeah, I couldn't even count how many investigations Bolsonaro and his <laughs> family are under right now. Um, there's just so many. Um, as far as I understand, like to remove him from office uh, through legal means, there's two people that can do this. There's the Speaker of the House, which is a close ally, Arthur Lira, um, the one that the military was threatening. And then there's the uh, Attorney General or the um, prosecutor, uh, uh, public prosecutor general, who is um, also uh, a very staunch ally that, you know, is causing a lot of problems internally because he's just been backing him on everything. So if neither of them are willing to go to the mat and, and open a uh, process, then he's basically safe. Um, but these investigations, you know, they're, yeah, they're, they're embarrassing. They, they lead to, um, search warrants that can reveal new facts that can be politically damaging. And, uh, they're definitely, important, but I don't think any of them individually is going to lead to him being removed before the election. Um, but he can do a lot of damage. I mean, he can do so much damage uh, to Brazil in, in multiple areas and to the world. Um, I mean, there's these the undermining of, of democracy, which could be, you know, he could try a coup, which would be extremely traumatic for the, for the country. There's the undermining institutions, which uh, even if he loses, will still have like knock-on effects for years to come. They already have, and all this started with Vazajato, basically, or uh, Lavajato, basically, um, the the undermining of of politics and of the the courts, and and you know people lose trust in that. It makes it easier for Bolsonaro, or the next Bolsonaro, to come in, or the gov or the the military to come in, and and you know uh, push back all those hard-fought gains. They're hard to to bring back confidence. Um, he is able to, you know, continue screwing up the, the economy in, in many ways. And there's, there's a whole slate of, uh, of um, laws that are, that are going through the Congress right now that they could still pass um, before he's, uh, he leaves. I mean, just right now, they, they passed a bill in the, in the lower house to privatize the Postal Service, which, you know, is another thing that the, the Republicans would love to do in the United States. They've been trying for decades. Um, and they've been trying here too. They were able to pass this law, and then recently, or I think it was yesterday, they came out and said, uh, "Actually, we think we might create a new public service just for the interior, because you know, same as the USPS, like the thing that's not profitable, and the reason why you need a public service is to serve 
you know, the rural areas. And think about the rural areas in Brazil. You have the Amazon. How big is that? You have Pantanal. Right. You have all these right. huge areas that it's just not profitable. And it's the only way, only contact uh, that a lot of people have um, with the rest of the country. And also they, they do banking services and other services. So it's very important. They, they pass it to privatize. It, it's you know, unclear if it's going to pass, but I think it probably will pass before. Uh, they, they want to privatize uh, the major electric company. Uh, which again is a profitable enterprise. There's no reason, there's no fiscal reason to do it other than they just want to, you know, it's part of their ideology and they, they can give their friends uh, some, some, great, um, some great chances to make a bunch of money. They, they just passed the and sanctioned to law the central bank independence, which is always a, a favorite of the bankers that, you know, if a left-wing government comes in, they can't, they can't mess around with the, with the monetary policy. It's, it's going to be up to this technocratic elite, um, something that's, that was, you know, happened in, in the U.S. and in, in Europe already. Um, they have, what else they got? Oh, they just passed a mini labor reform in, in the lower house that is likely to pass. That basically just one more uh, setback of, of labor laws. You know, they, they say flexibilizing. It, it flexes the, the labor laws, but it basically makes, you know, uh, workers' situations more precarious. It makes it easier to cut hours, cut pay, fire people, uh, hire people under new schemes and, and go towards this um, contractor model that they love. Um, they have all these electoral things that they're doing. And then there's also a huge slate of uh, regulations involving the environment, environment and indigenous rights. And, you know, indigenous communities uh, obviously need to be protected in their, in their own right because of the history of, of um, genocide that, that was... That was that happened in, in Brazil and that continues to happen. It was very, you know, accelerated during the military dictatorship. Um, but they're also the number one defenders of of the Amazon of the environment. I mean, the areas that are under protection by indigenous groups are much less deforested than the ones that aren't. Um, so there's, you know, a law they're trying to make it so that if the if a tribe wasn't in um, possession of a land on the day that the Constitution was signed in 1988, then it's not their land, which is something that's you know, not how it was before. And that would be, it would take a huge chunk of the, the lands that haven't been formally recognized yet. There's like a lot of them in this process that just keeps dragging on and dragging on. A lot of them would suddenly become federal lands. It'd be easier to, to um, you know, chop down and turn into farms. Uh, there was another one where they're trying to make it so that like, even if they do own the land, they don't have veto power over public projects, and so it's easier to, to do mining and do, you know, pass electrical lines and build roads, which lead to illegal deforestation. They're trying to make mining easier on in, in, uh, indigenous lands and another law. It's another one that like, oh, if you stole a bunch of land in the Amazon, you chopped it down, uh, we're going to give you an amnesty. This one just passed in the lower house, too. Uh, you know, you're good if, you know, it's up to, you know, a small amount to a pretty large amount, uh, it's okay, and it's going to make it easier for people to do that in the future, and it just encourages people to do these things um, and to keep doing it. And, and the other one, the big, the big one that's basically going to kill the Amazon if it's passed in the Senate and it's waiting to be discussed in the Senate, um, is the environmental licensing law, which is, it basically takes this very complex system of environmental licenses to do anything uh, in, in the Amazon and in other uh, natural areas that say, you know, we need to do a study, we, the government needs to do this, we need to, there's a lot of different ways to make sure that it's not going to be uh, very destructive. And under the new system, you would basically self-license. You say, I swear 
that I checked it out and things are going to be fine. It's good. Uh, it's fine. Yeah. Yeah. For anything that's not like <laughs> love- a, a giant farm or a giant project. But if you have a, you know, if you want to build a giant farm, you just turn your giant farm into 10 small farms that you have right. to own and are, and are contiguous. And then you, you don't have to go through the, the licensing process. So, you know, all of the um, uh, environmental groups here are saying, like, if this passes, it's, it's over. Because the, the latest studies show that 18% of the Amazon has been deforested. And if you have 20 to 25% deforestation, you're looking at complete collapse of the ecosystem. Um, and if that happens, it's going to turn into a savanna. Uh, you know, the, the Amazon is one of the largest stores of, of uh, carbon in the world. And that would all, you know, go up in smoke, eventually probably get burned down through natural forest fires. Uh, it would get rid of the, um, the, the whole climate of the continent because, you know, the rains that go to the south of the rest of South America and the rest of Brazil, and Brazil is mostly powered by hydropower, um, would those rains would disappear. And the, the, these things are already starting to change. These patterns are starting to change because of the level of deforestation. Uh, for the first time in the last 10 years, the Amazon emitted more carbon than it um, captured. Um, and so we're really, really like, you're right at the edge. It's just like, um, you know, the greater climate change debate that, you know, you're right in the edge. And instead of taking this seriously and doing things to immediately mitigate they're, they're ramping it up and they're pretending like, you know, climate change doesn't exist. And uh, deforestation rates year per year have gone up uh, considerably in the Bolsonaro years. And it looks like this year is going to be the same or worse. Um, and they, you know, there's nothing, as long as they're in control of the, the federal government, there's really not a lot that, that can be done um, to stop this from happening. And if people think that he's going to lose, then it's going to encourage these these you know very large, uh, well financed uh, gangs, which you know it's it's they're syndicates. You know they're 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 massive. These are massive projects. It's not just like a couple of ruffians out in the street um, to invest more and, and to take more now before the new government comes in. So you know if you push that twenty percent, and what if it's nineteen percent? What if the, the the tipping point is nineteen percent? What if it's twenty? What is twenty one? I mean, once you get there, there's really there's no going back. You can't just elect a new government that's going to fix that. And so that's going to have a global effect and a permanent or permanent for you know the the span of our of our lives and our you know kids and kids kids kids. Uh, that's it's over. Um, yeah, so it's always been. I mean, uh, this is going to be his legacy to mankind. Basically, is, yeah. is the destruction of the rainforest, and um, you know, in a very real way, um, while he's always been regarded as Trump Jr. in a sense, uh, he's going to have a much worse impact on the world than than Donald Trump could ever have dreamed of having. And it's it's uh, it's very, very troubling, very troubling to think about that. Uh, and on that note, uh, which is a, a good down note, like I, I, I like to end these podcasts <laughs> on generally, um, Andrew, thank you again so much for coming on the program and, uh, you know, uh, best of luck to you, uh, in Brazil and, and we'll be checking back, uh, as the election gets closer. Thank you. It's been incredibly depressing. <laughs> That's the foreign exchanges guarantee. Yeah. <laughs> Take care. Bye-bye.
Once again, I want to thank Andrew Fishman from The Intercept for coming on the program to take us through the recent trials and tribulations in the life of Jair Bolsonaro. Uh, I know that was a downer of an ending, even for this podcast, which specializes in downer endings. Uh, but I really do think that this is going to be Bolsonaro's lasting legacy for the world is the destruction of the Amazon rainforest. I hope I'm wrong. Uh hope he doesn't manage to push it over the tipping point in the year that he probably has left in office uh, but I'm not optimistic this is not a thing in general climate change is not a, a place that I find a lot of reason to be optimistic uh, and this is particularly an area where I think we are in some some serious trouble um, no use sugarcoating it I guess uh, again thanks to all of you for listening and uh, until next time as always take care and I'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye.